Hey everybody, good morning and welcome to Christ Community Chapel. So, so glad that you are here. If you are worshiping over at East Hall, welcome. If you are just tuning in, glad that you have joined us. All right. We have a theme here at CCC that will carry us from now until September. And that theme is love matters most. Love matters most. We are taking that theme from a conversation that Jesus had with a lawyer in Matthew chapter 22. A lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks him a question. It's a good question. And the question is, Jesus, out of all the things that God has said, what's the most important thing? What is the greatest commandment? What matters to God more than anything else? And Jesus replied, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So for the next eight months, we are going to be diving into what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and what it means to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, and then what it means that God loves us, that God loves us. This morning, well, we're going to get to look at what is arguably the most famous verse in the whole Bible. It is John 3.16. And John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible, not just because some guy with a multicolored wig happens to be able to get into every major sporting event and hold it up, John 3.16. It is the most famous verse in the Bible because of what it says, because of the content so I'm going to read it for you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, then it's going to show up on the screen. I'm going to read John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, and then verse 36. This is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. A lot of people don't realize that Jesus is the one who is speaking here. Jesus is the one who says this. It's not John commenting on Jesus and saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus is saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's been having a conversation all throughout chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a very religious man, probably a very good man. And Jesus has just gotten through telling him that he needs to change in such a radical fashion that the only way to describe it is that he has to be, become brand new. He has to be born again. And that is a phrase that Jesus coined. Jesus coined the phrase born again. I tell you this because I want you to know that the central teachings of Christianity come from Jesus. That seems like a no-brainer, that the central teachings of Christianity come from Jesus, but you might be surprised at how many people 
I talk to, and maybe you talk to people like this as well, that will say to me, uh, I love Jesus. I'm cool with Jesus, uh, but I have problems with Christianity. And when somebody says that, I always say, well, what problems do you have with Christianity? And they'll say something like, well, Christianity claims to be exclusive, and I think that's arrogant. I think uh, that all religions have some truth and lead to God in their own way. Or they'll say, uh, Christianity teaches that God sends people to hell. And I don't believe in a God that would send people to hell. And I have to tell those people that those teachings come from Jesus. Jesus is the one who claimed exclusivity when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the one who talks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. So when you have a problem with Christianity, you have a problem with Jesus. So don't kind of confuse those two things. All right, so this is the major thing, right? That Jesus and Christianity are deeply connected, right? And in this passage, it says the same Jesus that says, for God so loved the world also says in verse 36, that he who does not obey the Son does not have life but the wrath of God remains on him. And the question is, how? How does both the love and the wrath of God be in the same mouth of the same person, this person of Jesus? All right. As I have three points, and as I normally do, and they're a little bit different, uh, they're not questions. A lot of times I have my three points are questions. They're not statements. They're emotions. The more I studied this passage this week, the more I felt these three things kind of wash over me. And I think if we understand this passage correctly, the same three things will wash over you. The first thing that I want to have wash over you is a sense of awe. You should be filled with a sense of awe. The second thing I want to wash over you is a sense of fear. You ought to be filled with a sense of fear. And the last thing is a sense of wonder a sense of wonder. Awe, fear, wonder. Let me start with awe. Those first six words of John 3.16 are absolutely amazing. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Just let that sink in for a minute. Out of all the things that God could feel when he looks at this broken and messed up world. He could feel disappointment. He could feel frustration. He could feel sick to his stomach. I feel sick to my stomach sometimes when I look at the world around me. And yet God says that the primary thing he feels when he looks at this broken and messed up world is love. What does it mean that God loves this world? How strong is the love of God? Like, when you compare God's love to a person's love, like find the most loving person that you can think of, their love cannot really compare to God's love, not in its intensity, not in its purity. I don't know of anybody who would claim that they can love as purely and as strongly as God. In fact, later on this year, we're going to do a series on 1 John. And in 1 John, it says that God is love. Not that he loves, not that he has love, not that he feels love, but that God in his core is love, pure love. 
So what does that mean? Now, I have this, these two glasses here, and when I think about the purity of God's love, I think of something that is this kind of um, purity and strength. When I think of a person's love, I think of something about this in its purity and strength. And let's say that this uh, represents uh, my wife, Karen. Uh, my wife, Karen, is one of the most loving people that I know. Uh, she is kind. She is gentle. If you were to get to know my wife, Karen, uh, it would be a gift to you. Uh, she is a wonderful person. Let me tell you a story of Karen's love. Uh, this is a photograph of my son, Jeremy, as he is right now. Uh, he is holding his son, John, and his daughter, Chloe. Uh, I wanted to show you that because I wanted to show you what he looked like when he was two and a half years old. This is what he looked like at two and a half. Right? <laughs> it looks like he just ate a pizza. You know? <laughs> Whenever I've looked at that, I've thought, why didn't any of my friends come to me and, they, and say, hey, listen, you might want to back down on the caloric intake of your toddler. Right? It looks like he's about to eat his little sister. Right? <laughs> That's Jeremy. When Jeremy was two and a half and Rachel was nine months, which is what they are in that picture, uh, Karen and I went to Bolivia, South America. We went there because we hadn't figured out where we fit in God's kingdom. And we were willing to do anything for God. We are still willing to do anything that God wants us to do. And we felt like we then, like we feel now, that it's easiest for God to steer a moving ship we didn't know whether God wanted us to be missionaries, so we thought, let's go see. So we went to, we moved to Bolivia, South America uh, with Jeremy and Rachel. And uh, when we got there, we went to an international church. It was a church for expats. And uh, our first Sunday there, we were standing in the courtyard. And my wife, Karen, was standing beside me, and Jeremy was standing over there. He was heavy enough to not be that active. So he's just standing there. And, and two five-year-olds walk past us in between Jeremy and Karen and myself. And one of the five-year-olds glanced over at Jeremy and nudged his friend. And he said this, who's the new fat kid? Just like that, right? And my sweet, gentle, loving wife lunged at that kid. Right? <laughs> It was so fast, it was kind of scary. And I grabbed her arm in time to try to talk her off the ledge so that she wouldn't beat up a five-year-old in the courtyard of a church on our first Sunday there. Right? Why did she respond like that? The answer is love. Love. Right? When somebody says, how can God be both a God of love and a God of wrath? then all you have to do is look at somebody who is even this loving. When someone that they love is threatened or hurt, see how they respond, and the way they will, they will respond is wrath. The only way I was able to talk my wife off the edge, by the way, was to tell her, listen, he didn't, he didn't even understand that. He's not hurt. Look at him. He's hungry. He's not hurt. Right? But if my wife had been convinced that he did understand that and that he was deeply hurt, if my son had begun to cry because that kid said he was fat, I would not have been able to stop my wife from going after him. So strong is her love. If her love is that strong, how strong is God's love?
for you. When somebody says to me, you know, my God is a God of love, not a God of wrath. I want to go, what are you even talking about? What does that mean? Does that mean that if God loves me and somebody is deeply hurting me or something is, is starting to destroy me that he just rolls his eyes and walks away? You think it would more, be more loving for my wife to go, ah, it doesn't matter if somebody hurts Jeremy? Of course not. Of course God, if he's a God of love, is a God of wrath. Those two things are not antithetical. They're connected. You cannot rip away wrath from love, not real love, not even your real love, right? I, I think it's interesting that Jesus uses the word obey in verse 36. He says, he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God remains on them because obey is a parental word. It's a word we use with our children, right? And this is the truth. If you have a child and you are all if you are all wrath and no love, then your child is abused and they will not develop in a healthy way. But if you are a parent of a child and you are all love and no wrath, where you never demand that they obey you, you never discipline them, you never say no to them, then your child is spoiled and they're equally developing in an unhealthy way. Right? If you ever watch a parent with a child, no matter how old the child is, whether they're in their teens or 20s or 30s, and that child begins to make bad decisions that are leading to their destruction, you watch the emotions that the parent goes through. The parent will feel sadness, but the, the parent will also feel anger, will feel wrath. Because as a parent who loves your child, you want to grab them by the shoulders and say, stop! And you know that for that moment, you love your child more than the child loves themselves. That's why you end up trying to stop them. That's why you have wrath. One of the characteristics of God that I have come to um, just be cap captivated by more and more is his goodness. His goodness. And I thank God all the time for his goodness because his goodness is broader than I used to think. And goodness is very close to love, by the way. Like if you tell me that somebody is a very good person, I will assume they're also a loving person. If you tell me that somebody is a loving person, I will also assume they're a good person. And when I first started to really appreciate God's goodness, it comes from a, a great story in Exodus where Moses asked God to show him his glory. Moses goes to God and said, I want to see what you got. Show me your glory. And God says, I will allow my goodness to pass before you, which was an interesting switch. But God says, even my goodness is so pure and so strong, I'll have to protect you. And he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock, and then he barely allows him to catch a glimpse of his goodness. But when his goodness passes by Moses, Moses hears a voice, and this is what the voice says. The Lord passed before him, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That sounds like goodness. And then it goes on. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
when I read that, I was thinking the first time, I remember going, wait, it seems like it's a contradiction. The first part says that God loves and God is, is forgiving and God is merciful. And the second part seems like the exact opposite. What's, what's the deal? And what I began to realize is that's what full goodness means. Because full goodness is both merciful and about mercy, but also about justice. Because there are times when you will cry out for mercy. And when you cry out for mercy, you are, you are crying out for the goodness of God. And there are times when you cry out for justice. And when you cry out for justice, you are crying out for the goodness of God. If someone is all mercy and no justice, that's not complete goodness. If somebody is all justice and no mercy, that's not full goodness. The same is true with love. That when you try to take love and you rip rip wrath away from love, you have less love. You don't have more love. Because the fullness of love contains that. So when we read those first six words of chapter 3, verse 16 of the Gospel of John, for God so loved the world, it should fill us with awe. That the God of the universe, out of all the ways he could feel when he looks at this broken world, this messed up world, your broken life, your messed up life, instead of feeling disappointment or distaste or disgust, he feels love. But a pure, passionate, ferocious love for you. Let that wash over you and give you a sense of awe. The second emotion that should kind of wash over us is a sense of fear when we read these words. This is what it says in verse 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This Christmas, um, I watched a movie with my grandkids, and the movie was called Togo. It was based on a true story that took place in 1925 in Alaska. Uh, It was when a a diphtheria uh, outbreak happened in Nome, Alaska, and the people were very sick and would die if there wasn't some kind of serum that was delivered, and the serum was delivered to Anchorage, Alaska. But there was a big storm, and it was 1925, and the only way to get the serum from uh, Anchorage to Nome was by sled dog. And the only sled dog that was a lead sled dog that was strong enough and courageous enough in Nome was named Togo. Togo was 12 years old, which is ancient for a dog. And yet Togo was legendary. And so they thought, if we have any hope at all, it's in Togo to lead the musher to the serum and bring it back. And I don't want to ruin the movie for you, except I am. (laughs) But William Defoe was the musher, right? And they say, they they estimated if they weren't able to get the serum that as many as a thousand people were going to die in Nome. Why was William Defoe willing to take Togo and risk so much to go get the serum and bring it back? And the answer is, the people were perishing. 
the people were perishing. John 3.16 says people are perishing. And those people are you. John 3.16 doesn't say that Jesus came to give advice, that Jesus came to give teaching. It says that Jesus came to rescue. Every rescue operation starts with danger. And the danger you are in is that you are perishing. You are dying. And what's interesting is that hardly anybody feels like they're dying. Like nobody feels like they're dying, which is crazy because all of us will. We know that. The mortality rate among human beings is still hovering right around 100%. Everybody you know is perishing. Everybody you work with, everybody you live around, everybody you go to school with, everyone is perishing, and yet they don't know. You've seen movies where somebody's in danger, but they don't know they're in danger. They're standing on a road. And somebody that, who loves them sees that they're in danger. And the person who loves them begins to run, just sprint toward them with their arms flailing and shouting and saying, watch out, stop, watch out, get out of the way. And the person who's in danger looks at them and is going, what? What are you doing? What's up? And, and then finally, they turn and they see the danger. And this truck is, is just barreling down on them. If you're watching a good movie, then what happens is the person who is sprinting towards them, dives and knocks them out of the way and saves them at the last minute. That's the image in John 3.16. The image is not a gentle image. This is not a benign story. This, isn't, this doesn't say, for God so loved you that he tucks you into bed at night and kisses your forehead. What this says is that you are in danger And the God of the universe is hurtling towards you with his arms flailing and he's shouting at you because you are perishing without a savior. And you don't know. You don't know. So this is a a story that should fill you with a sense of fear. Listen, if you are not a Christian, let me just talk to you for a second. If you're not a Christian, this could be the the best news or the worst news, or it could be both. And this is what's true, that someday the, the earth will open up and you will fall into an abyss. We call that death. And Jesus came not to be an example for you to follow, but for, to be a savior for you. And Jesus comes and through his life, death, and resurrection, he says, that is your salvation. And the way that you get that salvation is you believe. That's what Jesus says. You believe that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus hurtling towards you to save you. That Jesus went to the cross and was able to pay for your sin. And that he offers you life after death and full, more abundant life right now. And the way you get that is to ask him. It's to say to him, Jesus, I want you. I believe that you, sent, you were sent to save me. I believe that I am perishing. I get that. And I want you to pay for my sin. I want you to come into my life in every part of me. I don't withhold any part of me. That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. To invite Jesus into every aspect of your life, to let him remake you, because you already know that he loves you and you can trust him. If that's you, or you want that, then I, I want to invite you after the service to come forward and talk to our prayer team, whether you're here in the sanctuary or in East Hall. 
But do not let this day go by. There is nothing more important for you than this. Right? If you are a Christian, let me talk to you just for a minute. If you're a Christian and you come here, I am so glad you come here. I hope you love this place. I hope you love what is offered here. I hope you love the worship here. I hope you love everything about this. But we never, we need to make sure we never forget that we are a rescue place. We are a place designed for rescue. Our purpose is to rescue. We are a John 3.16 church because we believe that people are perishing without Jesus, and Jesus is their hope. So no matter how much you love certain things about this church or how much you dislike other things about this church, do not forget that we are about rescue because everybody you know, everybody you work with, everybody in your neighborhood, everybody you go to school with is perishing, and they need Jesus. When I, uh, in the, when I was watching that movie Togo, and the sled finally pulls into Nome. I had tears in my eyes because the people of Nome were weeping with joy because life itself was coming on that sled. Christ Community Chapel is that sled for certain people. Right? We carry life itself in the person of Jesus for people who will otherwise perish. Do not forget that. These first six words of John 3.16 are absolutely amazing. Right? For God so loved the world that ought to fill you with a sense of awe that the God of the universe, out of all the ways he could feel about you and your broken and messed up life, he feels love, passionate, passionate, ferocious love. It should also fill you with a sense of fear because this isn't a benign story. It's not a gentle story. It's a story about rescue. And Jesus himself is the one who is sprinting towards you, flailing his, his arms and shouting to you, because without him, you are perishing. And then it should fill you with a sense of wonder. It should fill you with a sense of wonder. Those first six words, for God so loved the world. Absolutely amazing, astounding that God would love you, that God would love me. How do you tell how much someone loves someone else? How do you measure love? When I officiate a wedding now, whenever I officiate a wedding, we get to the part of exchanging rings. I will turn to the soon-to-be husband, and I will say this to him. I want you to repeat after me. I give you this ring as a symbol of my love. And with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. And I love that part of the service where a man turns to a woman and a woman turns back to a man and they say to each other, I give you this ring as a symbol of my love and with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. Rings have always been costly. They were meant to be costly. Right? When I bought my wife's ring some 40 years ago, it cost $600 which may not sound like much, but it was all the money I had at the time. Why would I spend all the money I had on a ring? And the answer is love. Because I wanted to turn to Karen and say, with all that I have and with all that I am, I honor you. This is how you know 
how much I love you. Those first six words are amazing. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The only thing more amazing are the next six words. That he gave his only son. That he gave his only son. That's God himself looking at you and saying this. All that I am and all that I have, I give to you. I honor you. So that is wonder of all wonders. That the God of the universe loves you so deeply that he would not withhold his only son. And Jesus would go to the cross and die not for something that he did, but for something that you did. And at the cross, the full goodness of God comes together. His justice poured out in wrath on his son so that his mercy could be offered to you. Justice and mercy, love and wrath at the cross because of his love for you. Listen, whenever you see that guy in that multicolored wig hold up the sign that says John 3.16, I want you to remember I want you to let a sense of awe just wash over you that out of all the things the God of the universe could feel toward you, he feels love. Passionate, pure, ferocious love for you. I want you to go ahead and have a sense of fear wash over you and realize that John 3.16 is not some benign thing where God tucks you into bed and kisses you on the forehead. Instead, it is God sending Jesus hurtling toward you, arms waving, shouting, because you are in desperate need, in desperate danger without him. And he has come to save you. And then let it fill you with a sense of wonder that this God of the universe says to you, says to you, with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. Because for this God, the God of the Bible, the God, the only true God, love matters most. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we uh, come to you and I'm so, so grateful. I am amazed. I have known this verse from the time I was small. And yet it's never struck me like it did this past week. I pray for uh, every person here. I pray for those who are not Christians. I pray that they will sense something of your love, that they will sense something of their position and the danger that they are in, and they will come to you as their Savior. I pray for those of us who know you as our Savior, that you will renew in us a sense of urgency for the people that we work with, the people that we go to school with, the people that we live around, that people all around us are perishing and we have the answer because we know the Savior, and his name is Jesus. Thank you. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.